Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. Sponsored by Tech Help Boston. If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a great story. If you want to inspire someone, share your success story. And that's what this show is all about. In the spotlight, the woman at the helm of the Dimmick Center. Located in Roxbury, Massachusetts, it is the second largest health center in Boston, providing care to more than 17,000 people annually through comprehensive health and human services. And you know what? The Dimmick Center is also the largest employer in Roxbury, which is part of Boston. What does it take to do this job? Well, beyond her experience as a physician with a medical degree from Brown University, and an MBA from Johns Hopkins, the president and CEO of the Demick Center is a powerful and charismatic leader who was recently recognized as one of the top 100 most influential people in Boston by Boston Magazine. For women of color, she is living proof that obstacles can be leaped over and dreams do come true if you breathe life into them with passion and with purpose. In the spotlight, Dr. Maisha Minter-Jordan, and this is her story. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's it is wonderful so to good see to see you. Yes. Wow. The last time we sat here together, you had just taken on the job That's right. of running this incredible place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For people who've never heard the Dimmick Center, mm-hmm. could you just give us a kind of a an audio tour through sure. this incredible place? So the Dimmick Center is a health and human services organization that is right in the heart of Roxbury. We have nine beautiful acres with nine buildings that hold all of our programs and services that are all aimed at providing support to a largely underserved community. And by support, I mean health and human services with primary care, behavioral health, and early education. We have over 500 beautiful children on our campus every day, over 17,000 patients and families that come to us for primary health care, as well as some specialty health care and behavioral health. So our business model is really a third early education, a third behavioral health, and a third health care, all with the patient and their family in mind. You're up here on a hill in yes. Roxbury, Massachusetts, That's and there's right. a lot of history mm-hmm. involved in this place. Tell me about it. Yes, so in the 1800s, we started off as the New England Hospital for Women and Children, and it was a hospital run by female physicians. So an amazing time in our history when women decided if they weren't allowed to go to the medical hospitals because they only admitted men as physicians at that time, that they would start their own hospital. So that's exactly what they did, and they grew this hospital and really trained some of the most expert doctors in the country at that time as well as the first nurse in the country, Linda Richards, practice here and trained the first African-American nurse, Mary Eliza Mahoney. So an incredible history of female leadership. Congratulations on being named number 17 on Boston Magazine's 100 Most Influential People list. I'm guessing 17 is your lucky number from now on. I guess it is. <laughs> and thank you so much. How does that feel? And did you run out and buy a whole bunch of copies of magazines? What, what did you do? It's very surreal. And what I like to joke and say is if it worked at home, it would be fantastic. If I had the level of influence that the magazine talks about at home, I would be on cloud nine. But what it really, for me, feels like it's a... It's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement of Demick, most importantly, and it's an acknowledgement of all the work that I do on behalf of Demick. And it brings visibility to who we are and yeah. what we do in a way that we haven't had before. It's wonderful to be acknowledged in you know, circles where they acknowledge people of color, where they acknowledge women, but just to be more broadly acknowledged is really incredible. 
Tell me about your initiatives. I'm going to guess, you know, when we first spoke, you were just taking this on. Yes. And I'm going to think that your to-do list must be extremely long when you hit the ground running in the morning. What's your day like? Every day is different, which is what I love. And every day is driven by my thinking about how do I move Dimmick forward? So am I interacting with donors? Am I interacting with staff and ensuring that the staff have what they need in order to be successful? Am I bumping into a former patient of mine on the campus who gives me an earful about what we need to do? And then I take all of that back and really make some decisions about how do we move our programs and services forward? So what I love is the variety, and what I love is that every day there's a story that I leave with that re-energizes me and really resonates with me as a person as to why I'm in this. So there's always something, there's always some pearl every day of how we've helped a family or how a staff person has succeeded in helping a family that make all of this possible and make it all very real for me and very tangible, and, and it resonates with who I am as a person. While I was waiting to meet with you, I saw a sign downstairs in your lobby that said, where healing means more than treatment. Talk to me about that. So we think of our model as very holistic and comprehensive. And so we don't think of it only in treatment. And what I love about Demick is when I came here to interview for the first time, it wasn't about what type of physician I was or what type of physician leader I was. It was about, can you help us bring on the revenue that we need, the funding that we need to bring on a social worker? Because our patients have needs. They have socioeconomic needs that if you're really practicing medicine in a holistic way, you're thinking about all of those social demographics that we can impact when we provide care. We're thinking about education. We're thinking about behavioral health. And so for us, it's not sort of the writing of a prescription, but it's about understanding our patient, their needs needs, their environment, and how that really plays a strong role in their health care. The DIMIC serves as a national model for comprehensive health and human services, which you have just described. How does that feel? You know, mm. that people must call you all the time and say, um, how do you do that? We do. We do get those calls and it makes us feel proud. It really helps to fortify us in terms of doing this work and working in very difficult circumstances that are often resource constrained. But when you're recognized by others as a leader, and more recently we've been recognized as a leader in the integration of behavioral health and primary care, that really speaks volumes to staff, it speaks volumes to our patients to say that others recognize the excellence here, want to figure out how do we do what we do, and then we like to be able to teach that. You know, our our history is, is we were founded as a teaching hospital, and so we're still teaching people how to think about these communities and how to make sure that our communities have the resources that they need to thrive. You know, one of the things that you had just mentioned was sometimes your day has to do with dealing with donors. Yes. Is it true? I think you've raised $60 million. So it's one six. How do you get them to open (laughs) up their wallets? It's 16. Okay, that's all right. But, you know, to to have done that in particular for our capital campaign, we raised $16.4 million in two years. And for me, it's about believing in what I'm saying, number one, and feeling very passionate about that and being authentic. When I talk about what we do and who we are, there's a level of authenticity that I can't fake because I really believe it and I believe very much in our mission. And so getting people to hear that and to feel that and then finding out what resonates with the do- with our donors in terms of all the programs and services we have here. Being a very broad-based health and human services organization, there's almost no program that we don't have here that would resonate with someone. So it's really understanding who I'm speaking with and really being able to highlight some of the things that are important to them and speak to their own personal values in the work that we do. 
the opioid crisis from your perspective yes. as a doctor and as a hospital administrator, as a healthcare administrator, where are we with this epidemic? How do you see it through yeah. your lens? Yeah, it's, we're in a really tough time. So the positive, and I'll start there, is that there's a focus on what we know has been an issue for many, many years, particularly in communities of color, and now affects every community, no matter your race, no matter your creed or color, it impacts everyone. And so the recognition now of this as an issue that has the attention federally, on a state level, on a city level, on a community level, is something very positive. Because what it means is that we're starting to align our resources around this issue. And as I think about, you know, what do they say, tides lift all boats, if Everyone being on focused on this issue helps all communities, including communities of color that are often left to the side in some of these discussions. So being at the forefront of this, it allows me to make sure that all communities are accounted for as we think about what are the best ways in which we can impact this issue. The number of deaths has started to come down, but it's still incredibly high. It's still too high. And so what I'm hopeful for is that continued focus on this, an alignment of efforts across all levels of, of the society, including our corporate community, our donor community, because we have families that it doesn't matter if you're poor or if you're rich that are being impacted by this and people are dying and death has really has no face. So I think we're at a tough time, but we have the right people at the table helping us to come up with solutions that we're starting to see an impact from those solutions. One of the initiatives that you've worked very hard on has to do with teaching young doctors and student doctors mm -hmm. about prescribing controlled substances. Yes. Because so often painkillers are given out like candy, and mm -hmm. then you have a problem. Yes, I was fortunate that the governor appointed me to lead a commission that really helped to establish some of the regulations around that. And what I was really fortunate to have was the support at the state level of some gro amazing groundwork that had been already been done by Commissioner Burrell that brought the dental schools to the table, veterinary schools at the table, nursing schools. We want every medical discipline who has the ability to prescribe to understand the impact of that prescribing. We don't want to withhold pain medication when it's needed most, but we really want to understand how to best prescribe, how to think about alternative medications or therapies before we get to narcotics that can be potentially addictive. So it really allowed us to help streamline some of the work that had been done and continue to corral support across the variety of disciplines. I listen to you. I'm fortunate that I'm in your presence now. I feel yeah. your energy. I feel your passion. Where does this come from? Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood, people maybe who were big influences on your life? Sure. I think the, my influence started first with my mother, who was a nurse for 35 years. She and my father really created an amazing home for us as a, as a family growing up in Long Island, New York. Really had an incredible foundation of thinking about others and thinking about how do we provide care for others. So that was instilled from my mom, from my father, and our, and our family. I think moving on from that, my high school guidance counselor, Juliet Hansen, an amazing woman who taught me about grace and dignity as a woman and about being a strong African-American woman um, and really gave me a lot of confidence. And then from there, just really... Um, surrounding myself with incredible people who were like-minded, who really wanted to work hard, who understood the value of work, and who many of whom have become physicians. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of when you surround yourself, when you have a strong family, and then you surround yourself with the right people, it really helps to lift you up as a person. And, I, and I'm so grateful for that. Was there a golden rule in your house when you were growing up? Work hard. 
the golden rule was to work hard and to apply myself I mean everything that I did and as long as I did my best then it was okay and I and I really took that to heart I saw my parents get up every day and go to work very early in the morning or my father used to work the late shift and he worked for the Department of Sanitation in New York started off on the back of a truck worked his way up to a foreman by the time he retired they're doing very well their retirement is a reflection of many many years of hard work within the New York City system What's the best piece of advice you've ever received in your whole life? I think the best piece is follow your gut. Because there's so many times where you can take in the information, you know you're a smart person, you can apply what you know, but sometimes it really comes down to what is your gut telling you? Is it telling you that this is the right thing to do? And I think as leaders, we often have to do that. As physicians, we have to do that. We have to apply what we know and follow our instinct. And we're trained well to be able to do that. But I think as a woman leader, there are so many times when you want to doubt yourself. And I think when I repeat that to myself about following my gut, it usually works out. A knock on wood, I haven't had an instance happen yet where my gut has led me in the wrong direction. You're leading me to my next question. Can you share with us your leadership philosophy? What is that? So when I think about my philosophy, I think first about what my values are. And my values are transparency, respect, accountability, and communication. So everything that I do really comes from those values. Those are my values as a person, my values as a leader. And so when I think about how to lead, it's being very transparent in how I'm thinking about something and really trying to gain buy-in from my team. I think about respecting my team, respecting their expertise, and really taking that expertise to help me make decisions. And I think about holding myself accountable and demonstrating that to my team so that if I ask my, if they ask me to do something, I do it in the time that I said I would. If I ask them, they know that the expectation is, is for that to be returned to me. And then really trying to communicate effectively. I really try to make sure that I choose my words carefully, I mean what I say, and I listen very closely to others to make sure that I'm understanding what they're trying to say to me and reflect that back so that they understand that I'm listening and understand that I am um, really trying to be mindful and respectful of what what they want from me. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working the way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. If I had met you when you were a little girl and I had said to you, hey, Maisha, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. What would your answer have been? A doctor. I've known since the time I can remember that I wanted to be a doctor, and I've never wavered in that, which is good and bad. I sometimes wonder, well, could I have been a, you know, a fashion designer? Could I have been? But I've always been on this path as long as I can remember, and I'm grateful for having that uh, level of steadfastness. But I also wonder sort of what did I miss out on? But at the same time, what I do makes me incredibly happy and is incredibly fulfilling, and I feel as if I'm being a really great role model to my daughters. 
What was medical school like for you? Talk to us a little bit about that. It was tough. <laughs> it <laughs> a was, lot of hard work, it huh? was, Yeah, you know, I was at Brown as an undergraduate, and then you graduate from college, and, and all the fun times are gone, and all your friends are gone, and you're in graduate school, and you're really on your own and having to develop another network of, of friends and of people who can support you, and you're really in the trenches. You're not, you know, there. you're studying every single day, every single moment of every day, but you're also having these amazing experiences. I have talked to my daughter about working with a cadaver in my first year of medical school and what an amazing experience is someone dedicated themselves to science and you are actually working with the body and understanding and learning from that body. When I even when I think about it I just I get welled up because it was just such a privilege to see the human body, to learn about the human body, and then to apply that to people in real life. So it was tough, but it was amazing. And it gave me such an amazing insight into what it is to be human and the respect for life and the res- and the dignity that is associated with that. For me, it was also really encouraging to be an African-American medical student and to walk through the hospital. I cannot tell you the number of times a hospital worker, whether it was someone in the cafeteria, a nurse, would say they were so proud of me. They'd never seen me before, but they saw me in my white coat and said, I am so proud of you. Your parents must be so proud. So it was that community they really um, kept me going throughout those tough times. And the other side of that, did you ever feel as if you experienced any sort of racial inequality, any sort of prejudice as a young doctor or even yes. as a as a woman walking through life today? Talk about that. Both. There have been numerous times where I've walked into a patient room and was handed a, a tray or was told to adjust the TV. The patient didn't believe that I was actually the physician walking into the room. I can't tell you the number of times that happened and how you have to sort of course correct the person in a way that's respectful, but also recognize that that's happening to you because of the color of your skin or because of your gender. It makes you stronger and it makes you say, you know, actually, no, I'm your physician. And then to see the recognition on on their face and there's a level of vulnerability. And there's a lesson there too. And there's a deep lesson. And I'm thinking of your social worker, your your counselor when you were in in high school. That's where grace comes in. Exactly. Exactly. And I think having had those lessons as a, as a young person really prepared me for some of those interactions. Now, today, being a woman, in many, in, in many instances, the only woman in a room at a table, the only woman of color at a table, what I now have translated this into is I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. And if I'm the only one in the room, you're going to remember who I am. One of the landmark moments I find for doctors whom I've had the pleasure of interviewing before mm-hmm. Is that moment when you take the Hippocratic Oath Yes, and or when you're called doctor yes. for the first time? Mm. Can you take me back to that? You know, I was talking with my mom about this the other day, and I remember at least 20 family members coming from all around the country to my medical school graduation. And I think I may have had one of the largest cheering squads at the graduation, but that moment of taking the oath and the, the seriousness that you feel and the... Um, it just gets into your soul and you feel it so deeply and it's something that becomes a part of you. So for me, it was this incredible moment of realizing all of the work that I had done to get me to that moment and then looking out to see my family and my parents, my mother and father, 
my nephew, my niece there, and the pride in their faces, having being the first doctor in my family. It was incredible. To this day, I will never forget that moment, nor will I forget that commitment. You have mentioned you're a mom. You've mentioned you have two beautiful daughters. I do. Tell us a little bit about them. How old are they, and uh, do they want to be a doctor? So we go back and forth. My husband's a teacher, so they, they say, well, maybe I'll be a physician that teaches. So they're in between the two of us, which is amazing. He's a teacher in special education, and so there's also, through his work, a commitment to helping those who have been marginalized. And so for my daughters, um, Camille is my oldest daughter who just turned 13 yesterday, so I'm the parent of a teen now, which is a whole Good new luck. world. Thank you. I'm going <laughs> to need it. And my daughter, Sophia, who's a spitfire herself who's soon to be 11 what I love about them and the way that they're growing up is every generation gets a little bit better right that's what we hope and so their perspective is they're surrounded by physicians and lawyers and so they're at one point one of them said well all of the people that we know are physicians that's their world that's their context which is so different from the context that I had growing up and so they understand the value of hard work. They understand how far that can bring you. But most importantly, they understand this commitment to helping others. And I get to reinforce that with them through all the stories that I bring home from Dimmick almost every day. What's the golden rule in your house? Work hard. Just like yours Do was your when you were growing There's up. There's no excuse. We have so much that has been given to us. We're so blessed in so many ways. And I tell them their number one job is school and working hard. That comes first. After that, we can have fun and have a great time. And, and I want them to enjoy school and enjoy learning. Um, but that's, that's their job is to work hard. When we give birth to a child or if we are fortunate enough to have one handed to us mm -hmm. through adoption, our whole lives change yes. in the flash of a moment. Mm -hmm. What is mother love? It's selfless and never ending. I think about my children in everything that I do, in all my decisions. They are an extension of me. And I, it's so funny. I, my daughter, my oldest daughter runs track. The first time I saw her run, it literally felt as if my heart was running around the track. And the anxiety that I felt was probably triple or quadruple hers. And I thought about my mother and I ran track and how she must have felt. And, and you don't realize that as a child, how much you are a part of your mother. And it was literally watching my heart run around the track and feeling that anxiety and fear, but also excitement and joy at her, seeing her succeed at something that she's passionate about. But that's, that's how I think about motherhood. There's an old Irish expression that's very similar to that, where, you know, when you become a mom, it's like your heart leaves your body and is walking around. <laughs> that's it. That's <laughs> it. It's so true. <laughs> Do you miss actively being a physician? Do you get to treat patients, Mayusha? Yeah. Because you've got such a great way about you. I, I want you to be my PCP, you know? You know, how does I, that feel? It, do you miss it? I do. And I, I love, love, love being a doctor and the ability to connect. I am one of those physicians who, there was no medical talk. I'm going to talk to you as if you're a regular person and, and we're going to be a partner in your care plan. So I do miss that. But as I think about more broadly my impact on this system of care and on moving this system into the larger system and making sure that we have the resources that we need to do the work here, I know that that transition has been worth it. But when I think about it, it hurts. And I'm like, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. And I often see my patients on this campus and they'll say, where are you, Dr. Jordan? But I know that I, I have, I'm having um, an impact on a larger system, which is as fulfilling in many ways, but those one-on-one -on -one interactions, I, I really, really relished. When an obstacle is in your path, how mm. do you get around it? I look past it. I figure out how to deal with it head on and 
I think what's really important about leaders and I'm trying to remember who told me this, but leaders see past obstacles. They see, they have a vision. And so I keep my eyes focused on that and can deal with almost anything that comes my way. I'm knocking on wood here. Anything that comes my way, if I can see past it, it's only when you can't see past something that, that you stop. And so I, my goal is to just keep going and to try to, to figure my way out of any issue that comes my way. And sometimes they're tough and sometimes it takes time, but I, Always think about what's what's on the other side of this. Bob Rivers, the CEO of Eastern Bank, mm-hmm. I love one him. of your He's board fantastic. members, but also a huge fan of yours. It's mutual. He's an amazing. Has amazing he been leader. a mentor to you? He has been, and he's the chair of our board. So we're so very fortunate to have Bob as the chair of our board, and he is such a thoughtful, pragmatic leader, but also incredibly genuine and authentic. So I really respect him. He says you're a rising star who keeps on soaring higher. What's next for you? To keep doing what I'm doing here and to keep expanding and growing. What I will always do is work with communities in need and think about how do I improve the system of healthcare that we have. I've been at Dimmick now 11 years. It's been an amazing journey. And I see so much more that Dimmick has in store in terms of potential to grow, to serve more people to take on new services and programs that meet community need. I will do that here as long as I absolutely can. And even if I do at some point in the future move forward from Dimmick, everything I have learned here I will take with me and I will continue on in that vein of, of really thinking about how do we improve this system of healthcare for all. You know, one of the greatest joys for me in hosting the story behind her success is that because this is a podcast series, it's heard around the world now. And it's even heard in some countries where women may not have the same rights that you and I enjoy here in the United States of America. Mm. What do you say to a young woman who's listening to the two of us and Mm -hmm. she's listening to your story? Mm -hmm. What do you say to her in terms of hopes, dreams for their future? I say never lose hope. Always keep your eye on your dream and know that Every step you take forward can get you there. And I think what we have to do as women is never take, stop taking those steps forward. Even if we have to step back for a moment, take two steps forward. So it's starting small, continuing to pursue education is critical. And try to find some other people in your circle, and your network that can support you and your dreams and your hopes. There's always someone there, even when we least expect it, who is supporting what we do. And if we don't have that immediately in our lives, that's what we should be seeking out. Um, whether or not that's in the form of a mother, an aunt, a friend, surrounding yourself with people who can support what you do, but always looking forward, always looking forward, always looking up. I think that's something that we have to continually do. Success means different things to different people at Mm. different times in their lives. Yes. As you sit here in your office, Dimmick Center, high up on the hill in Roxbury. Yes. Surrounded by the history of this great place, Mm. over 150 years old. That's right. That's right. What does success mean to you, Maisha? Success means furthering this mission furthering the mission of healing and uplifting our community. In every way, if I can continue moving the needle on that mission, that feels successful to me. So whether or not it's opening up a new program, continuing the funding for a program that I know is critical to this community, bringing on a new donor who this work resonates with and who is supportive of our work, all that inches that mission forward. And so I am focused on that mission, I'm focused on that vision, of really being the world's premier health entity 
and, and really bringing the underserved the quality of care that they need and deserve. So that to me feels like success when I take it in increments every single day. You sure you don't want to be the first female president of the United States? That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I think I'm okay here for now. I think I'm good. <laughs> Thank you so much for being our guest on the story behind her success. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?